there's a sense of loss. You know, so many of us are, we're defined by our career and prestige and leadership. And I think any normal person, once that has shifted, there's going to be a strong sense of loss and self-worth and how we're contributing to the world and like relearning where else can I contribute so that I can still gain those types of emotions that I gained in my work. We're not eager as a culture to embrace that sense of sadness and loss to somebody who has a gazillion dollars in the bank. And that's really a wrong approach. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Kathy Velasic to the show. She wants to be the queen of the Greek literate world. Yes, you heard that right. She wants to be the queen of the grief literate world. And in this time together today, you'll understand why that's so meaningful to her and why she's here to talk to us about the process of really understanding what it means to grieve and how powerful it is for our lives moving forward after loss. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. It's just a privilege to be here and to continue the conversation. And I just enjoy learning from you, talking with you, and how we start changing the conversation. Absolutely. Well, you know, for the listeners, a little bit of backdrop. I think Kathy and I bumped into each other on the online world one way or another. And then we were at a, a conference, a financial planner conference, uh, just, I don't know, three or six, four months ago, I guess it was at this point. It, we just had the most delightful conversation. And so I was like, Kathy, we got to get together. We got to do a podcast episode. And she being as gracious as she is, like, okay, let's do it. So here we are. And, you know, Kathy, can you tell folks a little bit more just about your professional background and, and what you're up to? Sure. So professionally, I am a 25-year educator. That's my chosen profession. I, I grew up, my dad was a teacher, and he raised four teachers. And... I currently teach at California State University where I train teachers. So it's just like the circle of life. And I, um, and I've loved everything I've done in my life. You know, of course there's good, good and bad days for everyone, but I, I have the heart of a teacher. I want to create change. I believe in being part of the change and where, what I'm doing now just came upon what I experienced in my life personally. And I created a space for people and professionals to show up 
better for people who are grieving and really learn that language because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We don't, we say things that don't support others. And I knew based on my education background that I could create something that could be pretty cool and help others. So that's sort of what I'm doing. And that's how Grief Smart Advisor was born. So, and I want people to catch this Grief Smart Advisor. So, Kathy, you know, you're taking all your knowledge and experience of teaching and translating it and bringing it to the world of financial planners. Because in the field of financial planning, what do we know? We're either planning for disaster or disaster has happened and we're making a plan out of it. And so inherently grief is interwoven in it. And, and what I know as a planner talking with so many clients is it's not just the grief that's in front of them, but oftentimes there's unresolved grief from the past that's impacting their financial planning process. And so I think you know, for all of us to get more literate on what is grieving, how does it <clears throat> help us? That grieving is actually a really good thing. And you know, that's my perspective. I'm assuming that you think grieving is a good thing? Yes, I do. Grieving is a healthy thing. It's the natural response to loss. And you know, part of my story of I was widowed in my 30s and faced raising five kids with absolutely no clue what to do and really learning the hard way the last several years that widowhood's financial and people in financial services or anybody, anybody who supports a griever moving forward needs to have those sort of bedside manner skills that none of us as humans really know. And so I started really diving into the research and looking at best practices and what you say, what you ask, you know, really how to connect because communication is a connection. And, you know, most people come to advisors for one reason, but they're going to stay with you if you can really show up in the hardest of times. And it's been so much fun because this is, this is not my realm, you know, financial industries, you know, I feel like a fish out of water and at these conferences, I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but people have embraced me and I feel like the timing is right for this conversation because it's not so much normalizing this conversation. We have to normalize how we think of grievers. You know, I, I say I'm a widow and they think I'm 90 years old in wearing black, knitting in a rocking chair with nine cats. Okay, that's just our view. So let's just correct and say, Kathy is sitting here, she's beautiful blonde hair, a nice silk type top in a beautiful room. And she's certainly not 90 years old. So yes, our association of who a widow is need to be expanded and stretched big time. But you get that reaction when you tell people you're a widower. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, widowhood is where you are. It's not who you are. Mm -hmm. However, it is that stigma in this world. You know, I'm a fan of anybody who can think of a better word for widow. I'm all in. Okay. 
let's package that up and market it and make a billion and change the world. But until then, you say the word widow, it's like you're a middle school student in the middle of a dance floor with everybody else <laughs> on the sides, you know? And it's grief is very isolating. And I think we all learned from COVID, you know, that collective loss and that social isolation that we all felt, and it's debilitating. And so we don't know the answers. And when you have are working with people like your team or your clients who are experiencing grief, having an understanding of that grief journey and those secondary losses is really helpful for you to connect with what they're going through. Well, and I think, you know, for people that are on on the grieving side, if they have some framework or something that they can hold on to while they're in the stormy waters of grief, it helps them know that this is understandable and, you know, you can move through it. So what's, what is your kind of framework around grief that you like to help people better understand? First thing that your grief is unique to you. And you have every right to cry, <laughs> grieve in any way you want. And one loss is not more important than the other. The only loss that matters is your loss. And we try to justify this kind of, there's a hierarchy of loss. You know, people get sick. There's, there's a sense of grief there. You know, I lost my husband in my 30s. I feel like I lost him twice. First, when he got sick of cancer, and then when he died. You know, we don't think of people being sick or, or people being caregivers of a parent. We don't think of that as grief, but that is grief. They're experiencing a change and a loss that they hadn't planned on. And so as a society, we're just culturally conditioned to cheer them up. It's like they'll pull through, you know, it's God's way, you know, you're strong, you'll get through this. When really, how about you just meet me in my misery, link arms with me, share space with me, and know that you're there. Because grief can't be cheered away. It can't be, you know, manipulated to speed up. Wait, hold on. Did you just say grief can't be cheered away? No. I, no. It was distinct, and I love it. But it, it, it's so true, you know, that we've, we're so conditioned to try to cheer people up when they're sad. And I feel like that one of the hardest things I had to learn as a therapist was like, you're not in the business of cheering people up when they're sad. You're actually there to link arms empathically, literally or symbolically, and let them experience what they're actually experiencing. And then, almost paradoxically, that helps them move through it faster. But like, if you try to cheer them up quickly, it actually just kind of locks in the problem more. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yes. Absolutely. And people who grieve go at their own pace. Sometimes, you know, I, I will wear grief differently my whole life. Yeah. 
John will always be my husband, even though I've moved forward in a new relationship. He will always be my kid's dad. It's very much in the presence. I just wear grief differently. But when you love so deeply, how can you say I want to be over grief? You know, love and grief are, are very similar. And what happens, part of what I help people understand is that when we want to avoid or justify or cheer people's grief away, it's most likely because we're putting ourselves where they are. And that's exactly where we don't want to be. And it's too difficult to acknowledge those emotions in ourselves. So I'm having a very hard time being present with you in front of me. And self-awareness when you are working with people who are grieving is a very key piece of the puzzle because we want to go to, well, what would I feel like if that happened to me? Right. Where when you have clients or team members or employees, it's really a conscious effort to stay present with this person in front of you and listen to them and go all in with them. So if someone's working with their advisor and they're in the grieving process and the advisor's not equipped in being grief literate, how can people self-advocate for themselves while they're going through grief and trying to work on their money? What's really important if you're a griever in my opinion, is number one, get help. There are fabulous psychologists, grief counselors, support groups. Get whatever you can afford. Get the support that you need. And that was key in my grief. Okay, I had to get the support. I have, you know, you've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself. Okay. Yes, I had five kids. I'm sure they got fed and clothed and got to school, but that whole time was a blur. And as soon as I started taking care of myself first, doing the work, that's when I started to get better as a mother, as a neighbor, as a friend. And it is a process. You have to get grief support. I want to ask respectfully. I think there's almost a double whammy for women, right? Many women, as I'm coming to appreciate more and more, are so socialized to think about others first and in the role of mother. It's all about the kids. And so, like, you have that. And then it's like, and then you have this loss of grief. And it's so hard to really make it about yourself in some ways. Because you've got all this condition that says you got to make it about everybody else. Is that? Absolutely. You know, I, I didn't have a choice. Well, I did have a choice. You know, I I was raised by great parents sure. and that, you know, they, they came and really helped me out a lot. But at some point, you know, I had to play the cards I'm dealt and I was raised to get up back up. And I had five kids that really needed me. And so I had to make a conscious decision to stop handing out the Gatorade and get back in the game. And my kids would be better for it because it was 
I don't know how I did it. I did it, but I don't remember all of it because we want to do everything. And it's really important to ask for help. It, that is vital. You know, have a list by your phone or in your kitchen of all the things you think of randomly that you need help. And so when somebody calls or somebody writes or texts, you've got a list. You know, could you take my dogs to the vet? You know, I, I need to get my car in to get the oil chain. Could you do that for me? And be willing to ask for those things. Because the amount of tasks after a death and the paperwork and the forms, it is like the biggest thousand piece puzzle in front of you. And you don't even know what the box on the, the picture on the box looks like. You can't even see it. So you don't even know where to start. And so people, professionals, you know, all of these people in your corner can really help you create what needs to go forward. Playing with that metaphor. Do you it's debilitating. The, the grief is to, can, can be and is debilitating. Yeah. And that, that actually is not a bad, yes. bad thing. Right, and on to itself. Right? Like, we can't stop the impact of grief being debilitating, but we can get support to work Correct. through the debilitating phase of grief. And depending on the loss and the nature of it, that period of debilitation may be larger or less. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, back to your question about, you know, women kind of do everything. A lot of us fake it till we make it. Okay. I mean, I. I'm pretty good at putting on my my happy face, bringing my A game, even though inside it's killing me. And statements like, oh, you're so strong and you're so resilient and, you know, all of this, when really I just wanted to hear, this must suck. And can I help? Can I do something? Can I pick up kids? Can I take, you know, your freshman to volleyball practice at 6 a.m.? Or can I come over and watch the other kids while you're doing that? There's just, it's, it's daunting the amount of tasks involved after somebody dies. Would you say that sometimes you need someone from outside of yourself to say, it's okay to not be okay? I mean, there's so many yes. that are used to putting on the happy face and the high-functioning face and will kind of be the good boy or the good girl and soldier on and using many metaphors, obviously. And, and mm -hmm. get trapped in that, right? Because everyone then says, Oh, you're so resilient. You're so strong. Like you were saying, and then it just isolates us further from the reality of what we're feeling. So sometimes it takes a, a bold or courageous professional or friend to say, Kathy, how are you actually really doing? And it's okay if you're not okay. Yes because you shouldn't be okay, you know? And people who say, you know, they've had significant losses and they're like, I'm doing fine, I got through it. I'm like, that's a bunch of BS, you know? Let's just, I'm here to help you and listen to you and I wanna help you, right. you know? But, you know, my mother went through widowhood, I did, my sister-in-law, the strangest thing, she lost her husband about three years after I did. So it's here she lost her brother, which was my husband, and then her husband died 
both of brain cancer. How does that happen in one family? And so our pace of grief, even similar, similar deaths, our pace and how we approach things was very different. And I would love people to acknowledge that their loss matters, whatever that loss is to them. Their grief matters. Get the help you can. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be happy too. I remember myself laughing and having a good time and then coming home and feeling guilty about it. Like I shouldn't be feeling that way. It's just a sea of permissions. And I don't think anybody needs you to give you permission to feel anything. It sounds like there's almost having to turn inward for an inward permission to feel what you feel. And Mm -hmm. you may be caught off guard that you find yourself laughing. But widow in grief can, can still laugh and feel sad, can still feel scared and angry. They can feel sexual. They can feel financial. They cannot. And it's all subject to show up. The whole human experience and possibilities can show up in the process of grief. I agree. I think we think about joy as the opposite end of grief, all of these things, happiness, loss, and that we have to somehow stay in the middle and to stay balanced. That's called being numb, okay? I want you to grieve deeply and I want you to be happy greatly, you know, experience the high highs and experience the deep lows. That's called life. We stay in the middle and we keep ourselves in this shell so that we're afraid to be too happy. We're afraid when the next thing will drop because then we'll have to be at the other low. That's not any way to live. Oh, you know, I feel this discomfort growing in my chest as you're saying this, Kathy. As someone who's <laughs> suffering, kind of steady, eddy, flatliner, even keel kind of person, it's been quite the journey to learn how to grieve deeply and feel the intensity of, of all of that. But also, the other side of like that side of opening up has been the ability to <laughs> feel joy and gratitude and arousal and excitement in very in more fulfilling ways so it's like but when we numb out from emotion we lose access to both sides mm-hmm. absolutely it's it's no way to live Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. 
people are always surprised that, you know, what I teach at the university, I, I teach PE. I, I'm the professor of play and fun and games and activity for a lifetime, you know? And they think, how can you be so happy and joyous and fun once they figured out what I've experienced in my life? And it's like, you know what? John didn't teach me how to die. He taught me how to live. And this, this is where we need to spend time is, is in the playful side of life because those are the deposits that we put in right. when we know we're going to have to ask for a withdrawal and be at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. I think, you know, it, it's, it's one of those hard things. And this is right. I think this is also I'm curious your thoughts, like the timing of messages that we give people in grieving, right? Because I think when we pull back and we know like, loss and profound loss can be one of the greatest opportunities for personal growth and like embracing life in a deeper way. And yet telling someone that who has just lost their partner or is early in grief is the very last thing they want to hear. So, but while we know that's true, so it's like even what we offer at what point people are at can, is very important to be thoughtful about. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. It is. And what, once you said that, you know, we always hear, well, you know, you got to count your blessings or, you know, there's going to be silver linings out of this. That may be very true, but how about we allow the griever to find their own silver linings or count their blessings before you have to point it out? Okay. I painted this big wall in my foyer yeah. and it says, count your blessings. And I have all these tally marks. It covers the whole wall. I'll send you a picture. And it's to remind myself to count my blessings, but I don't like somebody else to point it out to me. Or they might say things like, well, you know, you're really fortunate that your kids were young, that they really didn't have to see him sick, or you're, you're going to find the silver linings. You know, you're, your dad would be very proud of you. That's a silver lining. And I don't know where people think they have the permission to come in and give grief advice to my children, but it's very much a sign when I go into mama bear mode, you know, I'm really protective of my children. You know, I love my children love hearing about their dad, who he was, stories about him. They love to hear his name. They love to know that people didn't miss, didn't forget him. Right. But to come in right. and give advice of the, you know, you should or if onlys, it's a tough pill to swallow. And that was a big piece of why I started this business of I want to change the language. You know, it's very awkward. I want to change what is supportive to grievers, what is supportive to their family, what is supportive to children, statements that disconnect, statements that don't land well. You know, I mean, you hear all the time, well, it's in God's plan. Well, I am a very strong believer 
And I got to tell you, I was mad at God for a good decade. And people who have, a, have some type of faith, whatever it is, question their faith in deep loss. So coming in, he's in a better place. It's God's plan. It's not supportive. It's kind of like you're just trying to cheer me up because you don't want to talk about it. Right. right. So what's an alternative? What, what, is something else that some, what is something that someone could say? Here's, here's the protocol if you're just going to say bare bones. Always say this, the person's name. We love hearing our person's name. It's like whipped cream on my heart. Okay? When I hear somebody say, you know what? I thought of John today. Yeah. You know, we were out fishing on the Sacramento River, and I always remember how much he loved to fish. Mm. You know? Or we say things like, we're thinking of your mom, Jane. And we know she fought cancer a long time. You are in our thoughts. You know, it's something like that. But if you look at people's responses or, you know, just get on social media sometime. When somebody announces a death, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So sorry for your loss. So sorry. We can do better than that. I'm sorry is a sentence starter. I'm sorry to hear about the death of your husband, John. His smile could light up a room and we are thinking of you at this time. Wow. That feels so comforting. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think about the, just the context of social media and like how we're all conditioned for such short responses. And yet in the time of grief and loss, and yes. something like a much fuller, robust thought and sentiment, how rewarding. Like, I can feel it in my body as you're saying that. And that kind of the affirmation yes. of, of a post, positive aspect of the individual. You know, our world, we're in this fast-paced world. But when somebody is experiencing grief and loss and you know them, it's time to pause. Consider a phone call. Consider writing them a card. Consider sending them a private message. Putting an I'm sorry on their Facebook post isn't enough. And you'd be really surprised at how invasive people will be. Uh, they'll, they'll say, well, what did they die of? Were they sick for long? Were these uh, complications of, of another thing? And they'll say it right on the post. And, you know, it's not a question. When I say my husband died, somebody might say, might be thinking, I wonder how. Because that's curiosity, right? Yeah, sure. Let the story unfold. Okay? I don't want, I want people to remember the special person he was. I don't want them to remember that he died of brain cancer. I don't want that to be the story. And we've forgotten what the story is to honor people who have lost somebody. So do you think it's more appropriate or helpful than to just say, if you would like to talk about how John passed, I'm open to hearing it and just leaving it yes. as 
that instead of the more invasive, well, how did he die, Kathy? Right. Well, imagine, I mean, put yourself, this, this is where I help a lot of professionals, you know, that first meeting or that first phone call. Okay. You want to invite the story. You know, you first, you say those things, you say the name, you know, you heard about the death of their spouse or their mom or whoever it was. You say a fond memory. If you didn't know the person, you say a memory about the person in front of you that they, you know, something like, you know, Ed, I didn't know your mom, but I'm imagining that you got a lot of her qualities. And the one quality that I like is blah, blah, blah. And we've talked about it, but we've brought out, brought up the person, talked about it. And then you say, I would love to hear more about your mom or your uncle or whomever it was. And you invite the story because people who are grieving want to tell you about their person. And specifically, if you have a relationship with them, if you never built that relation prior, that's sort of a hard hurdle. So I'm, I'm kind of noticing and thinking about in my own journey working with advisors and my wife and I went through a season where we lost three uh, children through miscarriage. And like the mm-hmm. conversations never came up. Like we just, like, and I think there was like, we didn't know how to talk about it. And our advisor at the time didn't really know how to talk about it. And yet it was really impacting our ability to, to engage our financial life. And so, you know, grief and loss come in so many different forms, different uh, reasons for it coming up. And so it's, you know, in some hand, one hand, it's, Maybe there's kind of some universal patterns, but there probably is also some subtlety depending on the type of loss that we've experienced. That, you know, I'm curious about that. There, there's a lot of, yes. <clears throat> and thank you for mentioning miscarriage and some losses and, and that matters. A miscarriage is a loss. And just acknowledging that with a person. If, if even in conversation, somebody said, well, you know, my daughter had a miscarriage or I had a miscarriage or whatever. We don't know what to say. Right. Acknowledge that as a significant loss. That loss, even though I don't understand it, is significant. I'm here if you want to share anything more with that. You know, I'm not a grief counselor. I'm a grief conversationalist. I'm asking you to tell me about what mattered to you. That's what I'm really asking. And people think miscarriages or a, that's the death of a child. Okay. Or a death of another child or going through in vitro you know, all of these types of things is loss. And we as humans need to acknowledge the loss. If somebody brought it up, you need to acknowledge it. They're begging you to acknowledge it. If someone is saying it feels like a loss to me, it's not our job to evaluate whether it really is a loss or not a loss or how how significant of a loss it is. It just meet them at exactly. This is a loss to you, and it's 
significant to you. And I think that that um, is so much more validating than us kind of formally or informally making that judgment. Like, oh, well, you know, at least he was this or wasn't that, or it's so much better, at least that they died this way or didn't die that way, you know, whatever. And it's like those comparisons don't help or don't matter. It's, you know, the loss is personal and it's, you know, it's putting it in a better or worse framework just is not helpful. Is that, is that what we're saying? It's spot on. You know, we have this sort of unconscious bias that there's a hierarchy in our own minds of types of loss, you know, where dying, a person dying in their sleep at 90 versus somebody at 40 or somebody dying by suicide versus, you know, of cancer or my mother dying versus my aunt dying. The only loss that matters is your loss. And for us as supporters and empathizers to acknowledge their loss without any type of measure is really vital in that connection. You know, I had somebody come up to me at a conference and they knew I was speaking on grief and they immediately shared that they had lost uh, their son by suicide. And when you establish yourself as a person as a, or a professional that you've created a safe space for somebody to talk about their own grief, Right. Be ready for everybody to share that. And guess what? That builds trust. It gives them permission to share. And this is why it's really vital that we have grief informed leaders in spaces that are needed in, in, in this industry or in any industry. This, so I hope this is not too far skewed, but I just thinking about the kind of pulling back up a little bit as you're saying this is there's some percentage of the population that is actively grieving at any point in time, right? And something about you mm-hmm. just having grief from leaders is like if you're leading an organization, it probably doesn't have to get much more than two or three people to know that somebody is grieving or losing something significant at that very point in their life. And if you're managing 20 people, or if you're managing 50 households as a financial planner, that there's a family, families in that group that are struggling with some loss. And so like the, the, for those math nerds out there, the probability that someone is grieving is a hundred percent. Yes. Yes. I'm just spitballing, but yes, it is. Everybody is grieving. And I think kind of maybe what you're saying is, Leaving is natural and normal and part of life, part of the lived experience for all of us. It is a universal experience. It's just not a universal language. And, you know, you think about, I work with a lot of advisors or even retirement coaches where people who are retiring they, you know, they have a ton of money, they, they're doing everything, but they hit retirement and they're experiencing, you know, all this empty time. 
They don't know what to do with it. All their friends are at work. And when they share that with their advisor, they immediately go into, well, let's cheer you up. You've got all this money and time. You can do anything you want when really, why didn't you just meet them where they are? They're struggling. They're struggling with some of the secondary losses of this transition. And so having those grief statements and scripting of how to really connect to this person in your office is vital. It's not a death, but it's a loss. It's a transition. And we don't know what to say. We're just like, yeah, but you got all this money. You can do everything, you know, go buy your second house and travel around the world. And they're like, party of one. I don't have anybody to go with because all my friends are at work. Uh, <laughs> like, this is part of that cultural myth that it like just having money should bring us a sense of security and everything is okay. And yet money cannot bring that kind of okayness, especially in the face of grief and loss. And, and almost paradoxically, having all the money and then not being able to enjoy it can compound it. It's like we deferred enjoying life to save and be prepared. And now the very person or people I was going to spend the time with are not here to enjoy the money with. Exactly. And, and there's a sense of loss, you know, so many of us are, we're defined by our career and prestige and leadership and I think any normal person, once that has shifted, there's going to be a strong sense of loss and self-worth and how we're contributing to the world and like relearning where else can I contribute so that I can still gain those types of emotions that I gained in my work. And we're not eager as a culture to embrace that sense of sadness and loss to somebody who has a gazillion dollars in the bank. And that's really a wrong approach. Oh. Oh. <laughs> if I heard you correctly, and I, I think I, I did, but it's sometimes harder to extend that compassion to people that are experiencing loss with a lot of money because in our own minds, if you have a lot of money, everything else should be okay. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And, but it goes back to that same principle that we talked about. There's no hierarchy in loss. The only loss that matters is that person's loss. And when we're trying to support somebody, be there for somebody we can't judge what or why they're going through. How about we just meet them where they are? And we don't know how to do that very well. Well, I think this just goes, goes to the point of your, your statement earlier. Grief is a universal experience, but not a universal language. So there's no amount of money or professional status or job title or ethnic background or religious background or philosophical outlook or gender identity or any of those things that can protect you from the, the feelings that come up around loss. Try as you might. Yeah. 
there's no life insurance policy big enough. There's no, you know, trust documents strong enough to cover any of that. So, you know, Kathy, as we wrap up the conversation for today, I know there's so much more we could continue to talk about. Um, but for today, what's that? What's the kind of final message that you'd like to share with folks about grief and becoming more grief literate? I think my final message is that to recognize that it's completely normal for us to feel uncomfortable talking about these things and to be awkward. You know, we, we, we want to be authentic and perfect in this setting to be there for somebody, but we're not. We're like, you know, that deer that just got up for the first time and walking and it doesn't look right. And yet when we're leaders and professionals, we don't want to appear that way. But it's completely normal. And that to get grief literate involves practice, scripting, talking, having conversations, and getting good at it. Because you get confident when you practice and you know exactly what to say. And it's such a learnable skill to put in your tool belt. And for me, yes, I've created this business because I want to make a difference. This is my love letter to the world, Ed. Okay. I don't want to just make a difference with financial advisors. I want everybody to learn grief literacy. So I'm inviting you. That, that's, that's what I really want people to know. It's an invite because you'll become a better parent, a better partner, a better community member, a better leader. Not only when you serve your people, you help them grow, you grow yourself. So if people want to connect with you and the work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can look me up on my website. It's kathybalasic.com. Um, or they could email me at Kathy at KathyBelasic.com. This will be in the show notes. So if you're wondering, <laughs> wait, how do you spell Belasic? I don't know. It'll be in the show notes. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Just go check out the show notes and you'll get it. So Kathy, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and your love letter to the world. It is so meaningful and impactful. Thank you, Ed. It is such a privilege to be here and share space with you. And I'm just sending you all the love and success in this world. Thank you. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed.